All right. <clears throat> well, we're starting a new series today. It's called Broken Hallelujah. And so I just want to spend a few weeks looking at uh, the various struggles we have in our stories. Um, if I ask each of you where you would like to be listed at when we talk about Scripture, most of you would probably say somewhere in Hebrews chapter 11, because Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the Hall of Faith. And, and for your name to be listed in Hebrews chapter 11 meant that you were uh, someone who was known for the faith that they had. And so uh, I want to look at different characters in Hebrews chapter 11, because what we find is that in the, in the middle of every promising life is a broken hallelujah. Or some moment that seemed to set them off path from some glorious future that they were trying to achieve. And so I want to spend a few weeks looking at these characters from Hebrews chapter 11. And talking about their broken hallelujahs, but also looking at the broken hallelujahs that we have in our life. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. For your love and your grace. God, your mercy that allows us to be here today. And I pray, God, as we enter into this time, that your presence be so real. Lord, that your anointing be real. Uh, God, without you, this service is meaningless. And so today, God, we ask that you just be so strong. God, that you look at our lives, you evaluate our hearts. Lord, the areas of weakness, God, the brokenness inside of us, Lord, that you teach us through. I pray that those would be uh, lifted up inside of us today. And God, that you would turn our brokenness into broken hallelujahs. And so this morning, God, we ask that you uh, just be so real. And we give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. So this message was actually inspired by a song called Hallelujah which was written by Leonard Cohen. And, uh, and, and I, now I wasn't listening to that version, but one day I was listening to that song. And so one day as we're driving along, I hear the song, and, and, and if you're familiar with it, um, it's kind of like a cult popular hit. You know, most people know it. Uh, but what you probably don't know is that this song was spurred out of a career that had reached a point of failure. Leading up to this point, Leonard Cohen had literally had two different albums that bomb back to back and so as he gets ready to write this next album he has reached a point where they realize that he um, or he realizes that if this one isn't successful then nobody's going to really care for his music any further and so he writes um, this thing and, and he takes his uh, album which is called various positions to uh, Columbia Records and they listen to it and the song hallelujah which is on the second pay the second uh, you know, you flip the tape over, it's hard to describe because we have CDs now, or not even that now, but on the second part of the, of the tape, when you were to flip it over, it was the first song, and, and so the execs didn't think anything special of this song, and as a matter of fact, they didn't even want to release it, but they decided they would release it in 1984 in Europe, and then the next year into America, and believe it or not, the song did not do very well. Uh, we know it as a very popular song, but it wasn't a very popular song until 1988 when Bob Dylan covered the song at some kind of event and people became aware of it. Of course, it reached the fame that it did in 1994 when a guy named Jeff, Jeff Buckley sang it. And people began to realize what the song is. I tell you all that because it has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about. But as, uh, as I listen to the song, if you've ever heard it, uh, what inspired what we're going to talk about today is, um, is Leonard Cohen's outlook on life. He, he was not a very religious man. As a matter of fact, we would label him agnostic. He was anti-anything that was formal religion. Uh, and if you read interviews, he is very blunt about that, that he 
thought that everyone could have this achievable spiritual experience without having to use religion as a part. And so when we think of hallelujah, we put two words together. Hallow means all praise, and, and, and that last part is, is the unspoken word of Yahweh. And so praise be to God is how we understand hallelujah. But to him, his understanding of the word was when you see something in life and you just have to cope with it, you just say hallelujah. Right? And so it's why he says in the first verse, the baffled king composed it, hallelujah. Meaning he was so confused, just hallelujah, that's his situation. And in the second one, when he's talking about David, he's talking about Samson, he's saying these women wrecked their lives, that's just how life is, hallelujah. That's his understanding, is when you reach a point that you can only cope with it with one word, you just say hallelujah. Okay? And so in the third verse, was the one that describes it, he talks about love being this broken march and, and that it gives you nothing but a broken hallelujah. And I realized in that moment, what he was saying is, love can shake your reality. What you thought was something you could cope with, it actually changes everything. When I think about our journeys with God and, and I think about the realities of the things that we go through, there's times that we reach points where things shake our lives. And so the foundation of what we're going to talk about are these moments that shake our lives that we can only refer to as a broken hallelujah. Meaning I thought life was this way, I was ready to cope with it, and everything changed, and I'm okay with that because it's just my broken hallelujah. It shaped my reality a little bit, but it's caused me to cope with something in a new direction. You know, every single one of us has probably been through moments that causes us to just look at life differently. Sometimes it's a health scare, and we begin to appreciate life more. Sometimes it is the loss of a loved one where we begin to look at life differently. And just sometimes there's just a point that happens in our life where we begin to look at it a little different. Because it begins to shake our reality from what we believe life should have been. And we're not the only ones in this. When I was developing this, I was initially looking at all the characters that were involved in the book of Judges. Um, of course, Samson being the most popular, we all know Gideon, but you know you have Deborah and you have um, Barak, which is not Obama. And you have these characters that are in the Bible that you look at and you go, wow, man, every time <clears throat> something seemed to go right, everything changed for them. Um, but I just couldn't help but overlook, I mean, I couldn't help but look at Hebrews chapter 11. And man, it lists some incredible people that we're not going to talk about. Like, I wish we could talk about Rahab, but we're not. Well, what an incredible woman she is. Right? I wish we could talk about Isaac, but we're not. Uh, there's a lot of people that we're not going to talk about. But there were four guys that really stu stuck out to me that I thought, wow, we know them for their accomplishments, but the truth is in the middle of it, things happen that begin to shake the reality a little bit. And so we're going to look at Abraham and, and how God promised him a son, and the very son that God promised him, God wants him to kill. I mean, that's got to be a reality shaker for you. Or Moses who God called to do incredible things, and he had multiple times in his life that could have shaken his reality, but he stayed focused on God. Uh, we're going to conclude this on Easter when we look at Jesus, who in the midst of a powerful story had something that the world thought would break his hallelujah, but we know it actually created a bigger hallelujah. Um, today, though, I want to look at Noah. Um, Noah, we're all familiar with. There's only, he's literally mentioned in chapter 5, at the very end of it, and his story kind of concludes in chapter 9. So we don't get a big picture of who he is, but we get a lot of details about him. And Noah is known for one thing, right? He built an ark. We all know that about Noah. Most people, even if you didn't grow up in church, know about Noah and the ark. Um, but what we don't 
really realizes at the end of the ark experience, Noah had something that really shook his reality and actually set forth all the tension that we see in the Middle East today. So we're going to look at Noah. You know, Noah, if you want to talk about a spiritual high, can there be a greater spiritual high than being the only person that God chose to uh, be, be the only person that God chose to survive a worldwide flood? I mean, talk about a spiritual high. That's God looking at you going, you're the only one worthy enough to spare. That's a spiritual high. And so Noah knew exactly what a spiritual high was. And so on top of his spiritual high, when he couldn't reach any higher point, something shakes his life. But what's funny is you ever met somebody who has a name and you go, that name really doesn't fit them? Like, I work with a guy, his last name is Small, and he is the largest man you'll ever see in your life. Right? He, did, he played NFL football, he's just a massive, he's like 6'4", he's just a massive guy, he's got the biggest hands you'll ever experience. And, um, and, it's, and, and, and anytime I ever talk about him, I have to do an orientation every week, and every time I do an orientation, I introduce who the chaplains are. He's not with me, but I'll go, and there's another chaplain, and Chaplain Small, don't let the name fool you, he's anything but that. He is an oxymoron embodied in who he is. One day I was going through just like a little emotional thing, uh, like I go through every day. And, and he, and I came in, and I guess he just sensed it on me. And there's just something about him. He's, he's twice my age, and so he's kind of like, you know, I guess he has that fatherly instinct. And, and he just knew something was wrong. And, he, and his hand is literally like my two hands together. And he just takes his paw and slaps it on my shoulder and pulls me into his chest. If I wanted to escape, I couldn't. And he just wrapped me in his chest. And like a fragile woman, I cried in his arms uh, in the middle of a prison. He has a name that doesn't fit who he is. But there's times that you meet people and they have a name that fits exactly what their profession is, right? I found some and I just wanted to share them with you. Um, I saw this story about um, that this BBC reporter. And he was doing a story covering this welling adventure. You'll never guess what his name was. Jonah Fisher. Right? I mean, he was created for that very thing. I was, I was watching a, a news coverage of a fire that had taken place, and they had the firefighters speaking, and on the screen they had his name, Lieutenant Les McBurney. And I thought, if you were created for any job, that's your job. They showed a plaque of this doctor in his medical practice, and his last name was literally Dr. Achu. Right? Right? What else could he do with his life other than that? And then the, the last one that I thought was funny, I had a whole bunch of them, but I'll share a few of them with you. The last one that I thought was funny was a lawyer, and they gave her biography, and the lawyer's name was, she was an Asian lady, and her name was uh, Sue Yu. <laughs> I thought, wow, could she have done another job better than that? You know, sometimes people are given names that match exactly what they're supposed to do. We find in the end of chapter 5, Noah is given a name that describes exactly what God has called him to do. Chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Noah is the only name out of all of these that we get the description for. Everybody else, it gives their name, how long they lived, and that's it, the genealogy of them. But in verse number 28, it says, When Lamech, which was Noah's father, had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's name 
means relief, kind of respite. And he had the perfect name because that was the very thing that he was born for. That in the midst of corruption, in the midst of this sin-stricken world that God was so fed up with, he was ready to destroy, that someone would be born that would bring relief to the situation. Now, it, the prophecy that his dad has is out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work. Now, Noah's life wasn't meant to take away any hard work from people. As a matter of fact, if you'll remember, if we flip back a few chapters, one of the curses of sin was that man would now have to toil the ground with his own sweat, right? God wasn't going to just produce stuff for people anymore. Sin meant that they were now going to have to do it themselves. And so what his father is saying is not that people won't work anymore because of Noah. He's saying that because of the Noah, people will now have relief from sin. That people will have relief from sin. It's an amazing prophecy about a man who is going to fulfill exactly that purpose. You know, I was thinking about, uh, my name means nothing uh, important, apparently. Uh, there was not much thought put into my name other than the doctor suggested it and my mom signed off on it. And that's the gist of how I got named. Um, but I thought, what kind of pressure would there be to be Noah, right? Your dad's like, all right, uh, your, name's gonna, your name's Relief. And we're just trusting that you're going to bring us relief from sin, right? And can you imagine like Lamech and Noah walking up and he introduces him to somebody, this is my son Relief, and he's here to save the world. Like there's a lot of pressure put on a person. But high expectations come with a high calling from God. But what we'll find is high calling and high expectations also comes with a high, a high faithfulness from God. If you'll turn over just one page to chapter 6, you'll get a picture of what the world was like and why it needed relief. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and, the land and daughters who were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. How many of you thought that this meant that people couldn't live past 120 years old? Don't raise your hand because that's not what it means. It actually means that God was essentially putting the human race on countdown for 120 years. Man wasn't going to live another 120 years. As a matter of fact, if we traced the day back to this, God only gave him 120 years and he destroyed the earth with, with a flood. And so God was, was fed up with how the world had come. And so he puts them on a countdown clock. and says in 120 years, flesh will not exist anymore. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. They were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was, was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the, of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But here, here's the most important thing, verse number 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So in the midst of God's regret, Noah brought relief to God. God was repentive that he had created mankind. They had turned to evilness, right? 
Whatever you believe the sons of God are, all we know is that people who weren't supposed to be interacting with women are interacting with women, and we find that they're creating a race of giants. And these giants were the embodiment of evil. And so all around you, you see massive men walking around who are the very picture of the wickedness that the earth faced. And you can, you can see the frustration of God as He looks upon man, and there's giants everywhere drowning out all the people. And God says, I regret that I've ever done this. Man is wicked beyond... You know how many years it took from creation to reach this point? About 1,600 years. In 1,600 years, man had become so wicked that God regretted even creating them. But in the midst of God's regret, there was one man who brought relief to the situation. And God knew that He could use that one man to kind of reestablish what His destiny was for mankind. And it wasn't wickedness, and it wasn't for them to live in this reprobate state. It was for them to live in obedience to Him. You know, Noah is the grandson of Enoch, who walked so close with God that God took him away from the earth. He is the, the, he is the great, excuse me, great-grandson of him. He's the grandson of Methuselah, who God let live the longest out of anybody, and his father is Lamech. He came from a great lineage of people. And God knew that. And God knew that their lineage was passed down to him and that he would be uh, one who could carry it on. And so God chooses Noah to not only bring relief to himself, but bring relief to the world. And, and of course, we're familiar with this story of Noah and the ark. And Noah is instructed by God to build a sea vessel, nowhere near a sea, to prepare for rain, which had never happened before. So imagine the faith that it takes for that. Imagine God comes to you and says, I need you to build a vessel for water. I know there's no water around, but I need you to do it. And oh yeah, water is going to fall from the sky. And I know that's never happened before, but that's about to happen. And I need you to prepare for that. Wow, that would take some faith to do two things that you thought were impossible to do them in that moment. And even when God gives the measurements out, I bet Noah's even looking further going, I can't do this by myself. And so God blesses him with three children. You know, we always believe that it took Noah about 100 years to build the ark. Um, but it's actually a little bit less than that. It takes him somewhere between 55 to 75 years. It's still a long time to do anything, right? I mean, I can hardly focus on something for five minutes. And so if you can imagine for 55 to 75 years they're building an ark, uh, that's a little tough to grasp. Um, but he's building this and he's putting his obedience to it. And so Noah follows God. In the covenant that he's established with him. And so they board the ark, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. All eight of them board the ark. And for a year they live in an ocean setting as God begins to cleanse the earth of his wickedness. And God chooses those eight to be the ones who will start the next generation of people. And he also chooses uh, a handful of animals that he will use to uh, start the world again. And so here we have this picture of faithfulness. A man who did something that seemed impossible, who followed God. And we look at it and go, man, what a hero Noah is to our faith. But then we get to the end of the story. And Noah, the one who is known as relief, is about to do something that's going to bring strife back into the world. If the story ended there... It would be a hallelujah world. It would be a hallelujah story. But it didn't. We go over to chapter 9 and we read that in the middle of his story, there's a broken hallelujah. Something that changes his perspective on life. Genesis 9, 
20-24, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest, uh, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So the man known for being sober and drunk in company was now drunk in sober company. Like his whole perspective of life has just been shaken in this one moment. A man that we knew had a hallelujah story. A man that we say, this is how you follow God. In the middle of it, had a broken hallelujah. Now we don't know what happened here. What I believe happened is Noah just got drunk. Um, Maybe he wasn't used to drinking wine or whatever the case is, but whatever, we find him drunk, naked in a tent. And what I believe happened is Ham, who's kind of the rebellious son, right? Anytime you name a kid after a, a meet, you know that that's going to happen. And so Ham walks in and he begins to kind of mock and make fun of his dad. And, and you know, in Jewish customs, just to see your father's legs, right, was almost an abomination. So you can imagine him making fun of his father's nakedness, that didn't sit well with Noah. And so when Ham tries to get his two other brothers involved, they're like, we don't want no part of this. And they actually walk backwards and they cover up Noah so that when he awakens, he's not going to be laying there naked and embarrassed. When Noah wakes up, and I believe what probably happens is his sons tell him what took place, and, and he wakes up angry, right? Like it's one thing to spank your children. He wakes up and puts a curse on his son for the rest of his life. What happened in that moment would be the, the stage setting for a, a whole time of animosity between the Jews and the Canaanites and all the descendants of Ham. Let me tell you who the descendants of Ham are. and It's, it's listed in chapter number 10. The sons of Ham, and if it sounds familiar, Cush, Egypt, um, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havala. Do you want me to read all these names or can I just tell you the most important ones? From, from Ham came Egypt, Babel, um, Assyria, the, uh, the, Philip, the Philistines, the Jebusites, Sodom and Gomorrah, Gaza. All of these are the descendants of Ham. And I don't know if those names sound familiar for you, but if you were to talk to somebody who was Jewish, every one of those names are people that they have conflict with. And so Noah, in his moment of whatever was taking place, his broken hallelujah moment set strife for the rest of history between his people and really his son's people. And from that moment on, there would be no, um, no reconciliation. Now you've got to think about who's writing this story. Moses is writing the story, and in the midst of him writing the story, there's some conflict taking place with Egypt, and there's some conflict taking place with uh, the Canaanites, who they want to go and conquer, right? And so uh, I'm sure Moses points this out, because one is he wants the reader to know where all of this animosity came from, but two, I think he wants to encourage the people of his day to let them know God has already promised us victory over them. We're the descendants of Shem. We're the descendants of Japheth. We have nothing to worry about because God is going to take care of us. 
But in this hallelujah story, there's this broken piece in the middle of it. And I don't know if you feel the same, but it's like watching a wonderful movie with a terrible ending. Right? Like I've invested all my time in this movie and it ends the way that I wished it wouldn't have. And I find myself when I read this looking at Noah going, why? You've already lived 600 plus years in obedience to God. You're referred to in your perfection. Not meaning that he didn't sin, but he was perfect, he was perfect in his obedience. Why would in the midst of all that he make the decisions he made? Yet we find Noah's name brought up again towards the end of the Bible. Hebrews 11.7 By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so maybe broken hallelujahs actually don't destroy our stories. See, too many times people have something that shakes their whole life and it ends their story in that moment. But if there's one thing we learn from Noah is that in the middle of our tragic situation, our stories don't end. Noah wasn't remembered for his broken hallelujah. Noah was remembered in the eyes of God as someone who sought righteousness because of his faith. What I, what I want you to gather from this series is that setbacks and obstacles may insert a broken hallelujah into your story, but they do not destroy our stories. They actually breathe humanity into them and they let the world know that our God is greater than any hindrances that our life may face. And so here's two things that I gather from the story of Noah. That God's faithfulness does not end even when ours does. Think about it. Noah was known for his faithfulness. But he has a lack of faith in that moment. And we call it a broken hallelujah. But God doesn't relinquish his faithfulness to him. And here's why. It's because God's faithfulness isn't dependent upon our faithfulness. If God's faithfulness was dependent upon us, He would never be a faithful God. Because we break His trust each and every day. Every time that we say we're going to do something and we don't, we break the, the trust that God has in us. But thankfully, His faithfulness is not dependent on the faithfulness that we have. When we read this story, imagine yourself as God. If Noah had just done that with me, and I was God... I would bring another rainstorm back into the situation, right? I'd be like, all right, well, they obviously learned their lesson. Bring another storm. But God doesn't do that. He remains faithful even in the middle of the story. It's comforting to know today that in the middle of my broken hallelujah, that God remains faithful. And we've all been in moments where we inexplicably went against God, though he had been faithful to us time and time again. But God's faithfulness is not dependent upon us, and that should be an encouragement to you this morning. To know that there's nothing that you can do to break the confidence of God. That God is going to remain faithful to you and love you because He's unrelenting in those. Um, and so there's nothing that you can do to break that. But, but what we do learn from the story is that our unfaithful actions do have consequences. Noah's inability to control himself led to an encounter with Ham. And the curse of Ham, that would be the curse that remains today between those same people. It's lasted all this time. Our bad decisions do not come without a cost. If you ask me, can I cheat at my job, at work, and God still remain faithful to me? Yes, He will remain faithful to you. But it doesn't mean that you're not going to get fired. Or it doesn't mean that there's not going to be some kind of repercussions for your actions. 
Just because God remains faithful doesn't mean that there's no consequences to the things that we do. God's unrelenting in His love and His faithfulness, but it's not a license to do as we wish. Just because God is remaining to be faithful to us doesn't mean that I can live how I want to. Well, God, you're going to be faithful to me whether I do it or not, so I'm just going to do it. Do it, but know that there's consequences for the actions that you take. As a matter of fact, Paul kind of addresses these actions, and he refers to them as the lust of the flesh. And he lays them all out, and he tells us that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Basically saying, if you continue to do these things, there's consequences for your action. Will God remain faithful to you? He sure will. But it's not a license to do as you will. We take encouragement from knowing His reaction to my broken hallelujah moments are not dependent upon me. But my disobedience, my disobedience has a price. That God's going to remain faithful to me even in this broken moment that I have. But it doesn't mean that I'm not going to pay a price for it. Our encouragement is in God's faithfulness, not in the repercussions for the wrong that we do. And so today, if you're struggling with doubt and, and understanding of God, I want you to know that He is faithful even when we do not see Him. That the problems you face only lead to a broken hallelujah. But we serve a God that enters into our broken hallelujah to develop our story of faith. The second thing I want to point out from the story is that broken hallelujahs, apart from God, is really only brokenness. Two men are the focus of the actions in chapter 9, Ham and Noah. Noah continues his legacy, and this serves only as a broken hallelujah in the middle of his story. But it seems like a different narrative for the story of Ham. We don't find explicit details about him, but we see the people that come from his seed, and we realize he has only spurred corruption now on that part of his family. Ham is the lineage of Israel's greatest enemies, and Noah is the picture of what faith looks like. In our brokenness, the moment that begins to shake our reality, the reaction that's taken in the midst of that really determines if it's going to be brokenness or a broken hallelujah. You may ask yourself, what is brokenness? Brokenness is when God allows a situation to tear apart the pride or any other thing that has been holding us back from a close relationship with Him. What we find in our world is that broken things are always tossed aside. Anything that we no longer need, we just throw away. Damaged goods, we reject those. And that includes people as well. Damaged people seem to be on the cusp of social interaction. In marriage, when a relationship breaks down, the tendency is to walk away and find someone new than to work at reconciliation. But the world is full of people with broken hearts, broken spirits, and broken relationships. And this morning, this church is full of broken people. Unfortunately, we buy the lie that this Christian walk is to be filled with regret and anger and contention. But what we really find out is we're a broken person. God never intended for us to walk around as angry Christians, people full of contention and battling each other all the time, yet that tends to be the narrative of who we are. If that's the life that we live, it doesn't mean that we're a Christian. It means we're a broken person. You're struggling with what Paul calls the lust of the flesh. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, and these um, things like these. And then Paul follows it with a very stern statement. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the things that are not indicative of a Christian life. These are the signs of a broken person. If I name that off and you go, man, I'm struggling with that right now. It's a broken piece inside of you that needs restoration. But the great thing is that we don't have to have a broken life, a broken home, a broken marriage, a broken family, or a broken church any longer. That God uses the brokenness to rid us of the pride and fleshly desires that control us. See, our brokenness is restored by our Savior who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. He was literally broken so that in our brokenness we can have hope. That's the amazing picture of what grace is. Is that I deserve in my brokenness eternal separation from God, but instead He chooses to allow Himself to be broken so that I can have restoration with Him. So that our concluding story is not a story of brokenness, but of a broken hallelujah. You know, Noah may have had a broken hallelujah in the middle of a story, but his faithfulness is what he's known for. And so my encouragement to you today is don't let this setback define you, but let your story of, of faith be the very thing that you're known for. This is your broken hallelujah. This is not your broken future. God doesn't desire for you to live in brokenness any longer. Because brokenness has always meant rejection. Right? I've been there. I know what it's like to be rejected. I know what it feels like to go through a world where people want nothing to do with you. And every one of you know it too. What I found in the arms of a broken Savior was for the first time acceptance. That though I was a wretched, horrible person... He still loved me because he didn't see my brokenness as something that needed to be tossed away. He just saw it a broken hallelujah in this beautiful story he was painting. If you're here today and you're struggling, I want you to know your struggles can end at the foot of the cross. That you don't have to be broken because Christ has already been broken for you. That your brokenness is not your future. Your brokenness is just what God is using in this moment to speak into your life. That your brokenness doesn't have to be the epitaph of your life, but it can be the story that's told for your future. That God takes your brokenness and he turns it into a broken hallelujah. That what was meant to destroy you is only shaking your life a little bit, but really pointed you in the direction you need to go. Broken people need a broken Savior. And a broken Savior puts the pieces back together because we find that he's the restorer of life. Let's pray. God, thank you for this beautiful day. That you love us despite our failures, despite our disobedience, despite the fact that we struggle in being faithful, that you're faithful to us and you love us. And God, today I know so strongly, God, that there's broken people here today. God, they're struggling with the, the very things that Paul warned us against. God, they're struggling with their, their emotions, their anger. God, they're struggling with their feelings of contention. God, they're struggling with their hatred of, 
of things. God, they're struggling with some addiction that's dragging them back when they try to get out. God, they're struggling with, with various areas. God, what was meant to be the very thing that broke them into pieces, today you mean to restore them to you. That their brokenness is really only the subplot in the hallelujah story. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to give you that chance if you're here this morning. I'm so broken. There's nobody that can repair me. I'm rejected everywhere I go. I want you to know that there is a Savior waiting for you this morning who wants to restore you, who wants to wrap you in His arms and wants you to know that this is just a small piece of the story of your future. If that's you, I want you to know that God is waiting for you this morning. I want you to come forth. I want you to find a place at the altar and I want you to let Him put your pieces back together. You don't have to remain broken any longer, but He'll restore your life. If that's you, I want you to know the invitation this morning is for the, the repair of your brokenness. That your brokenness this morning can become a broken hallelujah.